I'm too radical uh, for the mainstream. I'm too out there for the mainstream. The reason that, you know, my ideas, you know, aren't out there with everybody is just because they're too smart, too pervasive, you know, oh, sorry, too smart, too out there, it's, you know, too, too expansive. Yeah, too yeah. expansive, yeah, for ordinary people to get. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Matt McManus is a lecturer at the University of Michigan and the author of The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism. His latest book, The Political Right and Equality, came out last month in July from Rutledge. From Rutledge. I'll say that correctly. <laughs> yeah. so, Matt. I don't even know how to pronounce it, actually. It's Rutledge. Uh, welcome to the Diet Soap Podcast. I'm glad to have you on. It's been a while since you've been on uh, the podcast. I think the last time you were on, uh, I was over at Zero Books. This was a Zero Books podcast. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think we were talking about the Jordan Peterson book. Yeah, yeah, the one that came out in the middle of the pandemic when he just decided to go apeshit and travel to Russia and all that stuff. Yeah, uh, well, he, he had some severe uh, health problems, I guess, and, and yeah. was put into a medical coma, which he has apparently emerged from. Um, in any case, I, I'm glad to talk to you about the political right today. Um, and I'm going to start with a really simple question that you answer in your book, which is, um, what does it mean to be on the political right? Sure. Well, first off, yeah, it's great to see you again. Uh, it's been a while, but, you know, you're looking good. I always love the hair. Uh, I especially love the shirt, uh, you know, with the Zizek representing, looking all <laughs> yeah. angry and stuff. Uh, at but the, the short at end, the bottom, he says, I would prefer not to. Um, so anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, that's my mantra when I get asked to do an awful lot of things also. Um, but anyway, the political right, uh, as I understand it, uh, is actually more or less what F.A. Hayek uh, characterized it as. You know, big surprise there. Uh, so in his essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, uh, F.A. Hayek said that what designates someone as belonging to the conservative tradition or the right-wing tradition is their belief that there are recognizably superior people in society. Uh, now, what counts as a recognizably superior person People on the political right deviate very broadly on that. Some adopt a traditionalist approach. Some adopt a hyper-capitalist approach. Uh, some aren't traditionalists at all. But there's always a recognizably superior person. Uh, and the best kind of society is one where recognizably superior people are at the top of the pecking order or social hierarchy, uh, if you prefer mm -hmm. the more technical term. Uh, and they enjoy more status, more political power, more wealth, more prestige, pretty much everything that you can imagine because they are better equipped to exercise uh, the power that comes with having all those things concentrated in their hands. Uh, and different conservative and right-wing authors will have variable ideas about what role the masses or the herd or the swinish multitude are supposed to play relative to recognizably superior people, uh, but it's clearly not a role that's supposed to be as active or as important, uh, let alone as emancipated uh, as what's available to the superior people or superior persons. So um, your book is uh, kind of a, a, a almost an encyclopedia <clears throat> of right-wing thought. I mean, as 
It starts out with Aristotle as an antecedent to conservatism mm -hmm. uh, or conservative thought. You also begin by pointing out that what we, while conservatives try to claim to be holding on to some, you know, to antiquity, antiquity, they conservatives claim to be holding on to ideas from antiquity. In fact, the conservative thought as we know it is more contemporary than liberalism. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, you could trace back these doctrines um, as far back as you want to go, right? Uh, I mean, you could trace Marxism back to Plato if you want to be somebody like Karl Popper. Uh, you can trace conservatism back to Aristotle if you want to do something like what I do. Uh, you can trace liberalism to the thought of Stoic and Republican thinkers, uh, whatever. The reason that I center Aristotle is I argue that the Aristotelian worldview, not necessarily Aristotle's thought itself, but the Aristotelian worldview uh, was predicated on this idea that there are clearly recognizably superior people in any society, uh, and then there are those who are deficient in deliberative reason, and then those who lack it entirely. Uh, and the superior people in society are intended to be at the top of any social hierarchy because of their recognizable superiority, uh, and those who are lower down don't have the same capacity for agency, political intervention, uh, same kind of rights or money uh, that align with them. You know, you name it, right? They don't get it. Uh, and this worldview was obviously very attractive and hegemonic for a long period of time in various different guises. Uh, I really recommend people check out Don Herzog's excellent book, Poisoning the Mind of the Lower Orders, uh, where he spends a lot of time talking about the great chain of being uh, that was popularized in medieval thought. You know, this idea that there's God in his heaven and below him the archangels and then below that the angels and then there are the lords and ladies and kings uh, and then beneath that the peasants and you get the idea, right? There's a hierarchical chain running from top to bottom. Uh, and the idea of society that you found in this Aristotelian worldview uh, was one predicated on what Charles Taylor calls hierarchical complementarity. So society is a pyramid. Every rung of the pyramid needs the others, right? It's not like people at the top can do without the people at the bottom, but they're no way, uh, shape or form, entitled to, again, the same kind of status or benefits. Now, this worldview was largely uncontested uh, up until, depending on when you date it, want to date it, the Reformation... You know, if you're Eric Vogelin, you know, maybe even Gnostic thought was going too far. Uh, but at some point or another, a break occurred. Uh, I would say the clearest example of this being a good materialist is in the thinking of Thomas Hobbes, uh, who lays out uh, the kind of parameters of what's going to happen very clearly in Leviathan, uh, where he says that Aristotle's thought is just offensive nonsense, right? The world isn't some kind of teleology, teleologically oriented organism, uh, let alone, you know, a society, this kind of pyramid where there are recognizably superior people, uh, that God ordains to be at the top of the pyramid. Uh, everything is just matter and motion. Everything is just material. And people in the material world uh, are all free and equal in the beginning, right? Uh, and then this goes through various different mutations uh, up until the revolutionary age, uh, when it becomes very clear that this isn't just a theoretical kind of problem any longer uh, because of changing material conditions, changing geopolitical factors. Uh, this kind of outlook really becomes a revolutionary force leading to if you're a Marxist, you know the bourgeois era, or at least the progressive bourgeois era. Uh, and that's when you really start to see contemporary conservatism come on the scene. Uh, because as Corey Robin points out, what becomes very clear to people who want to defend the older worldview is that they can't just rely on it being the status quo or hegemonic anymore. Uh, it's become very clear that these kinds of ideologies can be contested very effectively from liberals and ultimately uh, by socialists later on. So we, they need to come up with new sets of ideas uh, in order to retrench uh, the kind of hierarchical worldview that they think is appropriate for society. But as I point out later on in the book, 
uh, later on, you start to see new kinds of reactionaries emerge that say, we shouldn't be in the business of trying to retrench the old worldview, because if the old worldview was really all that, uh, it wouldn't have broken apart so easily when liberals and socialists put a little bit of pressure on it. So what we need to do is come up with a new kind of aristocratic worldview that's more tough-minded, persuasive, uh, and really sexy uh, than what came before. That won't be subject to the same kind of failures. Hmm. So um, on Thomas Hobbes, you know, it's been a long time since I've read Thomas Hobbes. It was like it was the 90s when I <laughs> read Thomas Hobbes. And um, but if I remember correctly, he was pitted against Locke as the more conservative of the two thinkers when I studied him in the philosophy class. And um, I think it was, it might've been Western Civ, but in, I think of Hobbes as, I don't know if as conservative, but as having a very pessimistic view oh, yeah. of, of humanity, the, the war of all against all um, sprang to mind that idea <clears throat> when you mentioned his name. Um, so these uh, Aristotelian conservatives, might be trying to stave off the war of all against all um, was, was, but I guess I'll just ask is, was Hobbes, a, did Hobbes consider himself to be on the left, a liberal at, uh, in his day? Was he advocating for that war of all against all as egalitarian and moral? Well, that's a really tricky question. Uh, and I want to point out uh, Hobbes is a great thinker, right? Uh, mm -hmm. People all across the political spectrum try to claim him. Uh, you know, Michael Oakeshott, who is a conservative, says that he's a very modern kind of conservative, right? Somebody who accepted the kind of epistemic and ontological claims of modernity, uh, but was able to turn them to conservative purposes. Uh, other people point out, you know, this is Lukács, that Hobbes was the first great materialist, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so that obviously has egalitarian connotations. My take on Hobbes is that he was a radical philosophically, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And you can see this throughout his work, right, with his insistence that we don't live in a teleological universe, uh, that we need to be good epistemic and ontological materialists. Once you accept ontological materialism, and I mean, this is a crude materialism, we're not at Marx's level, but give the guy credit, he was writing two centuries before, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Once we recognize that the world is just matter in motion, uh, it becomes clear that a lot of the kind of sublime hierarchies that people project onto society, this notion that, you know, the king was ordained by God to be the king, just complete nonsense, right? Uh, there's nothing to that. Uh, so once we recognize that and we acknowledge that all people in the state of nature are just naked apes uh, running around free and equal in the state of nature, uh, we need to try to find a way to base society on a different set of precepts. Uh, now, mm -hmm. obviously, he eventually comes to argue that we do need to have a king in his palace or a sovereign, uh, a very powerful sovereign, in order to check the destructive impulses of humankind. Uh, and this naturally has a kind of conservative connotation that has been understood to have that uh, by many on the political right. But the way he gets there is very radical. Uh, since, again, he starts to say, listen, uh, there's nothing special about the sovereign. There's certainly nothing natural about sovereign hierarchy. Uh, it's an artificial god uh, or an artificial entity. He uses that term throughout the book uh, that was created by human will and human agency. Uh, and not only was it created by human will and human agency, people needed to consent to the erection of this kind of sovereign entity uh, in order for it to have the legitimacy to fulfill its basic function uh, of securing order for all human beings. And that's a very radical idea that people like Locke, as you mentioned, but also people like Rousseau, Thomas Paine, all of them uh, are going to take that up and push this in more radical, uh, at least radical bourgeois directions down the line. So after we, you, in your book, after you talk about um, Aristotle, you turn to the scholastic tradition. Um, 
so remind me what this scholastic tradition is. I think of it as aligned with Plato, but that's probably completely wrong. But, um, but yeah, you, you remind me of what the scholastic tradition is. Well, scholastic thinking uh, is the kind of synthesis of philosophy and revelation uh, that emerged in Catholic thought, uh, depending on how you want to date it. And again, there's debate on this. Uh, it began either with Augustine uh, and kind of reached its apex in the thinking of people like Thomas Aquinas, for example. Uh, and the basic idea was to say, listen, uh, we know uh, how the universe operates and we know what God wants because God has revealed that to us through the Bible. This is putting it really crudely, right? There are a lot of different flavors of this. Uh, but, you know, we also recognize that God gave us the capacity to reason uh, and to recognize the natural law uh, without need to appeal uh, to revelation, at least, you know, all the time. Uh, and what we want to do is try to achieve a synthesis or a harmony uh, between reason and revelation, uh, since put together, uh, the two will be more convincing and more powerful uh, than they would be independently. Uh, and there are also good geopolitical reasons uh, for the emergence of something like scholasticism, since many Christian thinkers at the time were really deeply concerned and also deeply influenced by that matter, uh, by the thinking of uh, Islamic philosophers who were also combining Aristotle and other antiquarian philosophers. So the, yeah, it was an Aristotelian, mostly the scholastics turned back to Aristotle. They came out of the, the Aristotelian tradition, or was there a part of it that was Platonic? Well, that that's also a complicated question. And I want to point out, I'm not an expert in scholasticism. There are people who know way more about it than me. But the usual way of characterizing this, uh, and part of this is also just um, about you know material resources available at hand. Uh, so people like Augustine, for example, uh, and early scholastic thinking was very heavily, were very heavily influenced uh, by Platonism, and particularly Neoplatonism, people like Plotinus, right? Uh, and this was in part because the work of Aristotle wasn't widely available uh, in the European world for a very long period of time. Uh, it was really only available in the Byzantine Empire, or the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, and then later on in the Islamic world. Uh, and for a long time, uh, this basically meant that Christian thinkers need to rely on Plato almost by default uh, because Aristotle wasn't available. But starting in the 11th and 12th centuries, you start to see new translations and new versions of Aristotle's thinking uh, enter back in uh, to the kind of European lexicon. Uh, along with interpretations of Aristotle um, by many Islamic uh, philosophers. Uh, and so this led to a kind of renaissance of interest in Aristotle uh, on the part of people like, say, Thomas Aquinas, who's the most famous example of a scholastic thinker who tried to synthesize the teachings of the Catholic Church with Aristotelian philosophy, natural philosophy in particular. Yeah. So um, earlier in the conversation, you contrasted Plato with Aristotle and almost seemed to indicate that Aristotle was a more conservative thinker of the two, or that, you know, at least some people on the left had taken up Plato um, and, as opposed to Aristotle. But uh, it sounds like both of these old Greeks were taken up uh, in modernity or as, as the Enlightenment came along as conservative forces. Would you, is that true, you think? Well, well they don't have to be, right? Uh, and I make it very clear again in the book that Aristotle, for example, uh, isn't necessarily a conservative thinker, certainly not in the modern sense, even if he's been very influential on conservatives and if what I call the Aristotelian worldview uh, is a constant object of nostalgia for them. But it's very possible to kind of find lessons in Aristotle that can be turned to progressive purposes. Uh, and we all know that Marx was hugely influenced, for instance, uh, by Aristotelian thinking. 
uh, and a wide variety today of progressive liberals like Amartya Sen, Martha Nussbaum, are also mm. heavily influenced by Aristotelian thinking, uh, particularly this idea that the end of the economy shouldn't be wealth creation, because uh, that's just a kind of fetishism. Uh, instead, the end of the economy should be enabling the flourishing of human capabilities, uh, is used the terminology that's used. Right? Mm. It has this nice kind of Aristotelian quality. Uh, and the same is true with Plato, right? Uh, I mean, Plato has had a profound influence on just all of philosophy wholesale, mm. right? That includes philosophy, uh, sorry, progressive and conservative philosophy. If you wanted to give a conservative reading uh, of Plato, uh, like say the Straussians do, who I talk about later on in the book, then what you'd foreground is his hesitancy about democracy, uh, his attraction to transcendent ideas of the good that aren't determined uh, by subjective human will, uh, the denigration uh, of the idea that Political legitimacy uh, is predicated on consent, all those kinds of features that you can find uh, in his work. Uh, but you can also foreground a more progressive uh, kind of Plato as well. Uh, think about something like the critique of doxa that you see uh, in many, especially the early Platonic dialogues. You know, the ones where, you know, somebody goes and puts forward an argument to Socrates really confidently that's based on tradition or respect for the gods of the city. And then he just says, well, let's talk, ask a few questions about this. Uh, and then the guy leaves in tears, you know, swearing vengeance, that kind of thing. Uh, the critique of doxa that you see in Platonic thinking, uh, without a doubt, uh, eventually evolves into things like the critique of heteronomy and Kant, uh, and I'd even argue the critique of ideology that you see in the Marxist tradition uh, and critical theory more generally, right? This idea that hegemonic or common sense views uh, shouldn't be taken at face value, even if they have a functional role in securing relations of power. Uh, they need to be constantly interrogated by critical thinkers. So that's just one example of how you can kind of appropriate Plato for progressive purposes. Uh, but without a doubt, you know, he's been very influential on the political right, particularly the particular democracy, like I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So to go back to what distinguishes the right from the left is that the, the right is committed to this notion of a hierarchical structure in society, whether or not that is uh, divinely ordained, you know, or uh, a natural formation based on evolution or whether it, it means some might say it's preferable despite it having no foundation right it, it, it <laughs> it's necessary uh to have this hierarchical approach um to uh society in order to squelch this war of all against all maybe or to 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 create order um out of the chaos of existence or something like that um well, I'm, 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 you know, just uh, taking guesses here. But you, you write about the sublimation um, of of power to authority and in, in, in relation to Burke, um, Edmund Burke. So, um, it, you know, am I am I uh, heading off in the right direction here when I talk about modern conservatives trying to justify a hierarchical authority without? recourse to d divine authority? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, there are plenty of conservatives out there uh, then and now who will just appeal by fiat to divine authority, right? Uh, although the ways they go about doing that are pretty distinctive. What makes Burke interesting, uh, and I would argue actually ingenious, uh, and I want to make that very clear, right? Sometimes people point out that I, uh, I pick on conservatives like Ben Shapiro and Mark Levin a lot by pointing out that their work is really pretty shitty, uh, and it is. Uh, and I mean, you and I have had a good laugh at that ourselves, you know, before about you know the Franklin School of Critical Theory and all that kind of bullshit. But there are genuinely very intelligent uh, and very thoughtful, even very deep uh, 
reactionary thinkers out there that I think are wrong. And Burke very clearly falls into that camp because what he does is really appropriate uh, a lot of the kind of modernist arguments that are being advanced by liberals uh, and by other kinds of progressives and turns them to conservative purposes. Uh, and this is a real talent that the political right starts to pick up in the modern era by saying, you progressives argue for X, but actually the better way to realize X is in this more hierarchical kind of manner, right? Uh, you can think about something like saying, you know, black lives don't matter, all lives matter, uh, or if you want to be really sinister, white lives matter. Just a kind of crude example of this. So one of the things that Burke does uh, is, as Edmund Neal puts in his book, Conservatism, uh, develops a, he develops a symbiotic opposite or inversion uh, of progressive ideas about the basis of political legitimacy in consent. Uh, and you see examples of this throughout the reflections on revolution in France. Uh, so for instance, he says, listen, they argue, you know, the French revolutionaries, that there are these kinds of natural rights uh, that society needs to be compared to uh, and that legitimate political authority. I say to you that the real rights that people possess aren't the rights that the French revolutionaries claim that you get. Uh, there are rights that are set by tradition and convention. Uh, and when we understand that, we also realize that rights uh, that are predicated in tradition and convention completely exclude uh, the participation of the lower orders in politics. Uh, and he actually singles out rights of political participation as the clearest right that he says you do not get if you are below a certain kind of class threshold. Uh, and he also says, listen, I agree that there is this social contract that exists in the way that Locke and Rousseau claim there's a social contract, uh, but it's not a social contract uh, between actually existent people, and it's certainly not one that we can choose to break if we don't think that the sovereign is being sufficiently responsible to us. Uh, the real social contract is, as Mary Wollstonecraft put it, a kind of gothic compact between the living, the dead, uh, and those not yet to be born, uh, and it's kind of consecrated by providence uh, and exists in eternity, and he kind of turns the arguments of progressives against themselves to say, who are you uh, to take this sacred compact between living dead and unborn and think that because your interests are gratified by it, you are entitled to change the structure of society? So that's a really innovative move, right, uh, by kind of presenting these symbiotic inversions of progressive arguments that can seem very appealing uh, if you're a reactionary, right? The other thing that he does uh, that's extremely important is lay out a kind of tableau of methods that conservatives are going to use to just, as you point out, um, amplify respect uh, for the forms of hierarchy and authority that they feel are important uh, to sublimate power and to authority. Uh, and sometimes he's very conscious about the fact that this needs to be a kind of reflective exercise in political rhetoric uh, and political theory. Uh, so for instance, he says, listen, enlightenment reason has shown that all the pleasing illusions, and he uses that term, uh, that made power into authority and that made subordination easy are just that, pleasing illusions. Uh, but what do we have if we turn away from these pleasing illusions? Uh, what we get is chaos, disorder, and each person thinking that they can feel free to criticize political authority and try to reinvent it into whatever it is that we want. Isn't it much better to lean on these pleasing illusions uh, because they seem to be working pretty well uh, in establishing an ordinary, like an orderly, coordinated society where everyone understands their place, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And you see, frankly, less blunt kinds of conservatives will make similar forms of argumentation uh, for the use of hegemony or ideology, uh, subconsciously making use of hegemony or ideology in the future. But another thing that he argues for uh, that is really at the centerpiece of the book uh, is exactly where he says, 
wherever you're going to put man over man, it's very important that the person who's going to be put over others have sublime qualities or properties attenuated to them. You know, I watched the Barbie movie not too long ago, right? If you're a king, you get to become accessorized with these kind of sublime, majestic qualities and properties. Because if you look up to an authority figure uh, and they are accessorized with these kind of sublime qualities, it makes submission a lot easier to do for, like, for you, right? You sit there and you're like, well... He's there in his castle and he's resplendent and he uses all kinds of big words uh, and he's got a crown and there are images of him as, you know, eight, nine feet tall. How could I possibly uh, compare to someone like that? Uh, and then, you know, you find later uh, reactionary thinkers in the same period, like the Maestro say, submitting yourself to somebody who has these kind of sublime properties attached to them actually elevates you. Uh, because even though you might not have any say in the political institutions that govern you, the fact that you are following uh, a sublime leader means that your life gets to participate in the kind of glory of his or her projects. Uh, and this, of course, is going to be very important later on as you start to see various kinds of populist conservatives develop a theory of charismatic leadership uh, that also is going to involve the subordination of the lower orders, but allows them to feel a kind of taste of power and sublime authority uh, through submitting to his or her prerogatives. Almost always is. The School of Materialist Research is a self-sustainable platform where ideas are discussed in ways that would not be possible in conventional academia. The school is defined by its interest in the materialist approach to knowledge. Among its faculty are Julia Kristeva, Amanda Beach, Ben Woodward, Thomas Nail, and Paul Cockshot. The deadline for applications is September 11th. Check out the link to the School of Materialist Research in the description for this video. I'm thinking about like Ernest Becker. Do you know mm -hmm. Ernest Becker? So Ernest Becker argues that uh, because we're finite beings, we're doomed to die, to become worm food, and we have trouble um, accepting this fact about existence, we uh, create uh, hero projects. We, yep. we look for uh, ways in which to dignify our existence. And one way to do that is to follow a, a charismatic leader and to, to project a kind of immortality uh, and significance onto the leader that is a, is illusory, but nonetheless, by doing so, you then get to participate in the illusion of the uh, significance and the permanence of that uh, leader. Uh, and it seems to me that at least Becker would argue that this is an intrinsic component of human psychology, transhistorically, that there's a need for immortality projects, projects of heroism. Um, uh, what I mean, Becker has been taken up by liberal progressives for the most part, oh, yeah. uh, but but nonetheless, he does seem to accept the that not just you know the masses, but every man, whether a king or a pauper, has this need for a, 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 a kind of immortality project or hero, a project of heroism. Um, so, what have you heard, or what do you think is the best refutation? of that argument or that claim? I mean, I think that's a million dollar question. And I think the lift is very good at responding to it in some ways, uh, not as good at responding to it in others. Although I'm not sure uh, that there is a great way of responding to it precisely because I do think uh, it is a basic psychological impulse, right? To want to sublimate uh, certain kinds of human activities, which can include sublimating authority. So I'll just give three uh, kind of responses that one can make. Uh, one is to just do the Pabesian 
Marxist Freudian thing, uh, which is to argue, listen, you know, wake up. There are no sublime qualities attached to these kinds of people. Uh, this is just you projecting onto them qualities that you want them to have, but don't actually exist in reality. It's a purely a kind of subjective or pathological coping mechanism. Uh, and this can be very effective in some respects, right? Uh, I mean, Hobbes lampooned Aristotle and lampooned political authority uh, and delegitimated and desublimated it very effectively. Uh, Thomas Paine and Marx also, as you know, uh, did an extraordinary job uh, of desublimating uh, the kind of naturalization and sublimatory efforts uh, of bourgeois political economists uh, and exposing them as kind of vulgar forms of fetishism and reification. Yeah, you can do that. Uh, and then Freud in the psychoanalytic tradition down to Zizek, you know, on your t-shirt. Very good at uh, critiquing sublime objects of ideology, as we all know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that the problem with these approaches, uh, and the right has always been good at responding to this, is to say, fine, you know, you've stripped away all the pleasing illusions and you just exposed us as kind of naked apes uh, frolicking in the world, searching for meaning uh, where there isn't any to be found. Uh, nobody can actually exist in that kind of state for a very long term. Uh, you take that away from them, and they're all going to wind up becoming, you know, passive, depressed uh, people who will turn from the opiate of religion and the opiate of sublime to literal opium, uh, or they're going to transfer onto new kinds uh, of sublimated ideologies. Uh, and these will be even worse uh, than what came before. Uh, and I think that there, what we need to do is offer a more rational, but also inspiring kind of political project uh, that hypothesizes that a non-alienated society uh, that isn't defined uh, by the forms of domination uh, and exploitation that we see right now uh, would allow people to exist without needing to rely so heavily uh, on these kinds of sublime illusions about power and authority uh, to give them a kind of artificial elevation to their life. Uh, and I think that that's pretty foundational to the socialist project going all the way back, at least from the mid 19th century, right? With the rise of something like scientific socialism. Now, what this could look like, you know, there's a lot of different flavors to it. Uh, then the third kind of way that we can approach this, and I'll just be very silent about this, uh, is to try to offer a kind of left-wing sublime project, right? To say that actually, if you want to participate in something that is bigger and greater than yourself, don't participate in that by attaching yourself to X, Y, or Z authority figure. Participate in it by uh, becoming part of the class struggle, right? The worldwide teleology of history uh, that is ultimately going to lead to the end of class society and the emergence of, you know, the world where we all what is it? Hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, and critique in the uh, evening, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's a very powerful narrative uh, that, say, Orthodox, Kotskian, Engelsian uh, Marxism put forward, because it does have the sublime quality to it, right? That you participate in this grand historical narrative uh, that's going to end with your inexorable victory and the end of uh, all alienation and all forms of expectation uh, and the advent of depending on what you want to call it, you know, real history for the first time or the end of history. I know there's debates about that. Uh, now, personally, I've never found that very attractive, uh, at least that narrative, because my flavor of socialism and Marxism isn't teleological, right? Uh, I think we have, you know, hope without guarantees, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Uh, but there's no doubt that it has served the left very well in the past in terms of mobilizing energies by getting people to participate in these big picture ideas. Uh, I'm not sure that we found a narrative to replace uh, the narrative of Marxist stress struggle that has ever been as powerful and as potent uh, without kind of falling into the same, what I would call, uh, irrationalist kind of traps. So there, you know, 
talk to somebody else. Uh, if you have uh, a narrative that's more rational, but also very inspiring and allows us to participate into some bigger project, uh, I'm all ears for it. And you know, I'm definitely willing to be sympathetic. All right. So here's here's the point in the conversation where it takes a, a turn where I'm I'm going to try to disagree with you. Mm -hmm. um, you describe Hegel as straddling the lines between radicalism, liberalism, and conservatism. Why? Why did you do that, Matt? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I knew that was going to come up. And actually, you probably noted in one of my footnotes, I actually gave an apology. Being like, I know a lot of people that I know and are friends with. Are I saw that. Pissed <laughs> yeah. off that this is here. But part of it was just to be honestly being completist, right? Because there's no denying that right Hegelianism has had a profound effect uh, on the political right. And I list some of the figures uh, that fall into that tradition, right? Uh, even contemporaneously, people like Paul Gottfried, uh, the man who coined the term alt-right, uh, Roger Scruton until he passed away not too long ago, probably the most prominent conservative uh, in the world, uh, certainly the best conservative intellectual, also a right Hegelian, uh, Michael Oakeshott, right? Uh, very important uh, mid-century conservative. Uh, so what I stress is that, listen, there is definitely a way that one could interpret Hegel uh, in a reactionary manner, right? Uh, and I think that Marx himself points this out in his critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, that if you buy too deeply into idealism, uh, that what, what ends up happening is you blunt the critical force of uh, dialectics uh, and you eventually turn into a kind of vulgar positivist who just affirms the world the way that it is and uh, suggests that to be a truly reasonable person is to recognize that everything in society is ordered the way it needs to be, uh, that the Owl of Minerva only ever appears at midnight, so it's not our job to criticize, only to explain how things got to where they are uh, and to say that it's good, it conforms to this rational pattern. Uh, and there are many different kinds of flavors of right Hegelianism that have tried to make this argument with variable success down, I guess, for two centuries right now. Uh, and I point out that, listen, we need to confront that kind of argument because you can definitely see passages like that uh, in Hegel's philosophy of right and his uh, lectures on the philosophy of history, right? There's no mm -hmm. doubt about it, uh, particularly his passages about the need for the monarchy, uh, his wariness of too much efforts to end the institution of uh, private property, uh, his calls for the formation of a kind of bureaucratic class, uh, his critiques of the French Revolution, you name it. Uh, but of course, there is the more radical Hegel, who's the Hegel that I've always found more attractive, uh, that I think is truer to the spirit uh, of the dialectical project. Uh, and this is, of course, the Hegel that exposes the fundamental contingency uh, of all existent human institutions uh, and calls for the reform in line with a more rationalistic kind of freedom uh, and equality that is yet to come. Uh, and I kind of uh, draw very heavily on the thinking of my uh, friend, Bona Radnik, uh, who's kind of Marxist Hegelian, uh, where I imply at the end of the chapter or the section, excuse me, that Maybe if you read the philosophy of right carefully, you'll realize that Hegel was actually being a bit subversive, uh, even in the presentation of this kind of right Hegelian view. Because he'll constantly say things like, yeah, we need a king. You know, the Prussian state is the highest form of history that's, or the highest form of social organization that's yet achieved in history. Uh, but the king should just be a kind of dumb pencil pressure who will sign off uh, on legislation and have no real power. Uh, or he'll say things like, again, you know, the Prussian state is the highest historical form that's emerged yet, yet uh, but Russia and America are the lands of the future. Uh, so I sometimes am convinced that what he was trying to offer consciously uh, was reactionaries to send a, a set of toy weapons uh, so that he could kind of bring the dialogue, or could kind of legitimate the dialectical project uh, in a way that would be acceptable to the Prussian authorities, but recognizing that it would still be taken up 
by his more sincere followers, the left Hegelians. Uh, but that's purely speculation on my part, uh, drawing again uh, on my friend Professor Radnick's uh, kind of take on this. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, Hegel taketh um, away, right? Yeah, right. I um, A few years back, I read and, and did a series of podcasts on uh, the phenomenology. <laughs> and we're about to launch into doing um, the uh, science of logic. Oh, that's uh, good. <clears throat> and if, if you, the thing about Hegel is that whatever he presents as a stable endpoint is almost always, I think would, I will say always, contains some contradiction which then immediately turns whatever he's presenting as the endpoint into its opposite and and then also he'll walk you through uh to how some new form emerges from the contradiction that he'll, like you know being and nothing become becoming in the science of logic uh you know since certainty gives way to skepticism and the phenomenology uh so i don't see him as a particularly conservative thinker but on the other hand it, it, whatever you want to present to hegel as like the the end point of egalitarian like he, if you say well our, our goal is egalitarianism he'll he'll just demonstrate to you how egalitarianism contains <laughs> yeah. you know this hierarchical structure and author and authoritarian uh ideas or something like that so or at least the Zizekian version of Hegel that lives in my imagination would, would do that kind of thing. Um, oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I want to point out again, uh, my reading of Hegel is extremely Marxist, my positive, constructive reading of Hegel, right? Uh, mm. So, you know, when Hegel and I go on a date, you know, I go on a date with Hegel, the phenomenology spirit and the science of logic. Uh, and, you know, when I'm sitting there shit talking about my ex, then I'm talking about, you know, the Hegel of uh, the philosophy of right. <laughs> Uh, and occasionally the Hegel of, you know, uh, his lectures in the philosophy of religion. Uh, and, you know, I, if I'm being honest, I'll be honest. Those were the chap the chapters. That's the chapter or the section for me that it was the most disappointing because I really wanted to say an awful lot about Hegel. Uh, but I realized that if I was going to say something, I would need to basically make the whole book <laughs> about Hegel because his thought is so rich and so encompassing mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. vexing in the way you describe. Uh, so what I kind of limited myself to do was say, listen, here's how right Hegelians have interpreted him. Uh, some of them are very smart people like Scruton. So we can't just say you're wrong uh, or, you know, you didn't bother to do the reading uh, and kind of move on from there. Uh, we require a response to right Hegelianism uh, of the sort that Marx gave in his uh, critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. Uh, but I'm not convinced that they have the right idea uh, of who Hegel was. Uh, and then I kind of said, no. To myself, at least, we'll postpone this and deal with it some other time. Um, and hopefully, I'll get around to that at some day. A, a little while ago, did you call Scruton one of the most intelligent and deepest thinkers on the right, or were you saying that about who came next in your list? What do you do? You admire Scruton as a philosopher and thinker? I do. Yeah, I mean, Roger Scruton, say what you will, uh, was a unusually honest individual, right? Uh, so let's take, for example, his book. Uh, the Meaning of Conservatism, an early text from the 1980s. Uh, he says emphatically in this text, listen, uh, conservatism is fundamentally different from liberalism and socialism, which are its enemies. Uh, one uh, that, And that's because the basic axiom of conservatism is that subordination and allegiance are what hold society together. 
Uh, and that means that there is going to be a lower order, right? That has to show allegiance uh, to those who are higher up. Uh, and he's even more honest later in the book where he says, there's something really admirable uh, about what he calls unthinking people uh, who accept the burdens that life imposes upon them without seeking to politicize them, without seeking recourse from society, right? Uh, Burke and Demestra couldn't have put it better themselves. Uh, now, it's not only his honesty that I admire, uh, it's also the fact that he was profoundly erudite, right? There's no denying that. If you read his books, um, he's one of the very few conservative thinkers of note uh, who would read, and I mean read hard, the British Marxist historians, the Frankfurt School critical theorists, uh, Sartre, Lukács, Bedieu, Zizek, right? Uh, now, I don't think that his takes on them were always fair. Uh, in fact, sometimes I think they're brutally unfair and even just downright, you know, Dull. Uh, but he did read them uh, and he took them seriously. And sometimes he drew insights from them, particularly where he said things like, look, Adorno uh, and the Frankfurt School have a point about the influence of capitalism uh, in the creation of a culture industry that kind of vulgarizes uh, the kind of broader aesthetic sphere. Uh, and as conservatives, we can kind of twist this uh, in a reactionary dimension, uh, which I say is always a latent potential uh, in Adorno, right? Sadly. Uh, but, you know, we can chuck all the stuff about, you know, needing to get rid of private property, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I just always point out, like, where now do you see a reactionary thinker uh, with that expansiveness of learning, that willingness to draw from the left, uh, and a kind of depth of interest? Uh, I mean, the best that they have right now is somebody like Jordan Peterson, who can't even bother to read Zizek's books uh, before he goes into a debate with him. So the right isn't likely to uh, see scrutins equal for a long time. And I hope that is the case, I should add. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, one final question here is maybe more than one, but how did God and capital get into bed together in this way? <laughs> uh, you mean in the United States? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a really long question. Uh, I'll just I'll give you the Coles notes answer. So uh, a lot of it was really contingent, uh, although there were favorable conditions that enabled uh, this kind of fusionist synthesis. Uh, from the very beginning. So the kind of capitalism uh, that emerged in the United States uh, was always tied uh, to a kind of deeply hagiographic narrative uh, about the role the country was to providentially play in world history. Uh, and it often deeply aligned with a very kind of Protestant attitude uh, about the value of things like work uh, and the rewards uh, that would flow from hard work uh, and a kind of enterprising disposition. Uh, and you can see this uh, in the appeal of many of the American founding fathers to somebody like Locke, right? If you read Locke's second treaties of government, uh, what's really remarkable about it is for all that it is a kind of um, attempt at a naturalistic account of the bourgeois mindset, uh, Locke throws a lot of God in there, right? Where he says, look, God has given the earth to the industrious and the rational. Uh, God does not just want you to kind of sit there worshiping him. He wants you to go out there and be productive, right? Uh, and that includes laboring upon the world to better your lot. Uh, and by consequence, by bettering the, to better God's world, bettering God's world, right? By improving it, uh, stabilizing it, uh, and transforming it for human purposes. Uh, so down the line, uh, these ideological ways of thinking about things that relate a kind of capitalist ethos, uh, to these kind of divine ideas uh, begin to catalyze uh, in the mid-20th century. So in early 20th century America, uh, as we all know, uh, there was a transition away from the kind of social Darwinism of the Gilded Age uh, to the New Deal, FDR, uh, and a very brief period where liberalism became hegemonic. Uh, 
uh, for a time period, uh, like progressive liberalism, FDR, Johnson, MLK, the Warren Court, that kind of thing. Uh, and many people in the United States were deeply resistant uh, to this development. Uh, that included, of course, capitalists uh, who are deeply resentful uh, of the fact that the New Deal was imposing limited checks, but still checks uh, on their overweening authority within the workplace, uh, taxing them to provide various kinds of social services, uh, and making it clear that government had a role to play uh, in bettering uh, the lives of ordinary citizens, uh, particularly the working white poor, at the very least. Uh, at the same time, many social conservatives were deeply concerned uh, about what they associated uh, with the New Deal uh, in terms of its secularism, uh, its growing interest in achieving racial harmony between peoples, uh, its attack on aristocratic privilege, uh, and of course, you know, its alignment in their minds uh, with a kind of creeping atheistic communism. So all of these things are kind of bubbling in the background in the conservative movements from about 1938, uh, when the New Deal really took off uh, and FDR basically convinced the court to sign off on it, the Supreme Court, uh, through to the 1950s, uh, where the conservative movement, for the most part, had to concede to the hegemony uh, of a kind of progressive liberalism. Uh, but in the 1950s, what you really start to see is people like William F. Buckley, uh, Frank Meyer, and Russell Kirk try very hard uh, to cry, provide a new ideological template for a muscular conservatism that could roll back uh, the progress that they associated with the New Deal. Uh, and Matthew Continenti writes about this very gracefully in his book called The Right, where he says, uh, Bill Buckley probably wasn't a great thinker in the same vein as you know, Scruton, right? Uh, but he had a very good feel for where the joints, that's his term, uh, of opposition to New Deal style liberalism existed in the American public. Uh, and what you start to see people like Buckley and Kirk and Meyer do uh, is say, listen, godlessness uh, and socialism uh, or social liberalism are all part and parcel of the same kind of thing. Uh, they're all species of, you know, take your pick, you know, progressivism, atheism, creeping secularism, creeping libertinism, uh, and we need to align ourselves together uh, in order to confront this effectively. Uh, and they start to do that reasonably well uh, in the 1950s with the foundings of magazines like the National Review uh, and, you know, more far right movements like the John Birch Society. Uh, and they take their first stab uh, at enacting this new kind of fusionist policy, uniting social conservatism uh, and capitalism together uh, in the Barry Goldwater campaign, which, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, Goldwater gets trounced in the 1964 election. Uh, there are a lot of different reasons for this, but Lyndon G. Johnson wins a commanding majority, and it looks for a little while like the New Deal-style liberalism is safe. Uh, but then, you know, just four years later, Richard Nixon gets elected, uh, talking about the silent majority of people that hold to these kind of fusionist views, uh, both support for capitalism and a kind of social conservative outlook. Uh, and by the time you hit the 1980s, it's become hegemonic in the United States, and the overtime window has pretty permanently shifted to the right. So that's the kind of brief version of that story that I can offer you. Maybe not very brief, uh, but you know, it's kind of the Cole's notes. Okay, great. Um, listen, I I, I want to talk about contemporary politics um, for a while with you, uh, just about this political moment that we're in, and about um, the ways in which I think uh, the hierarchical approach to understanding society has become pervasive on what uh, appears to be right and left in in the current moment. Um, so we'll just kind of chat more off the cuff 
in the second half. Are you, yeah. are you down for that? Oh, I'm totally down for it. Sounds good, man. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.